Dear listeners, as the war in Ukraine continues, the need for medical help is increasing. So before we begin today's episode of Faces of Digital Health, I would like to dedicate attention to two initiatives aimed at providing healthcare support to those in need in Ukraine. If you're a clinician or a telehealth provider, please get in touch with Health Tech Without Borders. Health Tech Without Borders is organizing a Ukraine telehealth relief initiative to provide free-of-charge telehealth and remote consultations to the people of Ukraine. So if you're a clinician or telemedicine provider, please get in touch with Health Tech Without Borders. You can find the link in the show notes. If you're a medical device manufacturer or have the ability to donate medical equipment, EIT Health is facilitating the supply of medical equipment to Ukraine. EIT Health has partnered with the Polish Medical Mission, which is a leading humanitarian organization working with healthcare professionals on the border of Ukraine. If you're an organization with the ability to donate and ship any of the medical equipment, please complete the form on EIT Health's website for Ukraine. You can find the link in the show notes. You're listening to Faces of Digital Health, a podcast about digital health and how healthcare systems around the world adopt technology with me, Tiasha Zaitz. In today's episode, you're going to hear about metaverse and healthcare. What does research say about the usability and use of mHealth apps? Which conditions need to be fulfilled for health tech to succeed? And you will also get a glimpse into how Canada's primary care chronic disease surveillance system was built. I spoke with Karim Kershevje, who's a family physician with over 25 years of experience in designing, developing, implementing EHRs. He also helped clinicians use them effectively. Karim is the program director of the Masters of Health IT program at the University of Toronto, and he highlighted why making business cases in healthcare is so difficult. Enjoy the show, and if you haven't yet, subscribe to the podcast to be notified about new episodes automatically. To learn more about the show, visit facesofdigitalhealth.com. Karim, hi, nice to have you here. We're going to talk a lot about healthcare IT today. So I want to start uh, with a topic that's far from the current re- reality, but is uh, a very popular discussion at the moment, and that is uh, metaverse. So I want to know, you know, what are your thoughts about it? Many futuristic ideas have been floating around for years and are now really strong because of uh, the hype that's happening. Reality, uh, the the reality is starkly different in healthcare. We're far from the metaverse. We're still battling paper. We're still battling fax machines. How do you see all the discussions about healthcare and metaverse? Yeah, I think there's a lot of things that are happening in the metaverse that I think will impact our healthcare system. Many years ago, when I was doing my MBA, I did an analysis of technologies in healthcare. And what I realized is that in healthcare, we don't create our own technologies. We borrow technologies from other industries. And so as we move forward, when a technology becomes mature and safe enough to use, that's when we will adopt it. So I see that there's lots of things in this new metaverse that are going to be arising, such as the use of blockchain for NFTs and 
other things like that, which I think will become very useful in the healthcare sector over the next few years. And I think we'll see those adaptations being built in. I think one of them, probably the most important advances that I think we need in healthcare is being able to tag and track data and how it moves around. Because if you think about it, any bank, like a large bank, it has many different branches, but all those branches belong to that bank. In healthcare, we have many outlets, primary care uh, clinics, we have hospitals, we have other outlets, but they are not under one umbrella. They all exist independently. And if we want to be able to share data between them, we need to be able to move it safely. And that's going to require um, more sophisticated technology that, than we have right now. And I think the advances of the metaverse, which many of the technologies that are being developed for the metaverse, will actually become useful for us in healthcare. For that. Is there any in particular that you have your eye? I won't say definitely, but what I'll say is that they are promising. I'm really liking NFTs at the moment. I'm also liking the ability of blockchain to keep track of things. And so I think those I see as being promising. Of course, the other ones are natural language processing. I think physicians and healthcare providers are not going to be our data entry clerks. So I think what we are going to need is natural language processing that will take their natural language uh, outputs and convert them into structured text. Because so I think that's another area. Whether that's part of the metaverse or not, I think it is. If you think about it, if we're going to talk to uh, artificial intelligences, then they better understand what we're trying to say. And I think that's all going to be part of this, the technologies that we'll want to use in healthcare. The natural uh, language processing that you mentioned and the ability to uh, type less into the computer is definitely a very highly anticipated feature of healthcare IT software for physicians, I'm sure. And uh, the I really am curious to hear your perspective on the development of electronic health records. You've been in this space for 25 years and that's a lot. And in this time, the EHRs have become very infamous. They are pretty much disliked, to put it mildly. So I want to see your perspective. What progress has been made? What has stayed the same in terms of the problems with usability and burnout? Oh, that's an excellent question. My favorite topic. If you think about how our current electronic medical records look, you'll see that they are very text-based. And in a world where information is exploding, making converting everything into text just makes no sense to me. It is just crazy. And advances in knowledge management are not going to be made by adding more text. So I think uh, one thing I see is that we're going to need much better visualizations. And this is an area of research for me that I've been working on for the last decade or so. And it requires good underlying database technologies. So I think graph-based technologies, graphical te databases have advanced in their maturity. So I think that's another area that is going to help provide the technological underpinning for more advanced visualizations and more advanced user interfaces for electronic medical records. So I think that's another area that I see as being very exciting. And of course, what we need is that middle layer between your database and between your user interface, which is what are the business rules of converting that data into visualizations that make more sense for humans. So I think that's going to become an area that 
that we'll explode over the next decade. Technology becomes cheaper and it becomes easier for us to do the kind of data manipulations to help people visualize data better. There's a common belief that regardless of where you go, medicine is the same. To a certain extent, yes, that's true. But to a large extent, especially when you're designing a healthcare IT system, that doctors have different preferences, cultures impact on whether or not a doctor will prescribe you to just rest or give you an actual medication. And that poses a lot of challenges when it comes to the design of applications. You uh, have experience with the design also from the academic perspective and from the practical uh, perspective. So I want to know, based on your experiences in the last 20 years, what have you learned about how to create products that are applicable to a broad range of users? Is it inevitable to have a high level of configurability based on the user? So uh, <clears throat> this is an excellent question. I work for an IT consulting firm. So I tend to be more of a large picture kind of uh, person you know, when it comes to these kinds of topics. And I'll, I'll say that the answer to your question is in three layers. Okay. So whenever we do any kind of technology, technology has to succeed at three layers. It cannot just succeed at the level of technology and excellence in technology. It also has to succeed at the level of interoperability. And it also has to succeed at the level of policy. So it's got to do something useful to our healthcare system because in our healthcare system and most uh, socialized medicine healthcare systems around the world, except for the United States, value is decided by policy, not by price. So even if you've got the right price, if the policy is wrong, policy trumps price in the healthcare system. So everything has to succeed at those three levels. So if you've got a new app or a new approach to doing something, I think we have to have at the policy level, I think what we have to have is uh, good economics. It has to solve a valuable problem and it has to uh, be something that policymakers understand and are able to make policy about. And then in order for that technology to work, it has to be interoperable with other uh, systems because the product in healthcare is knowledge. And if you don't have data to support that knowledge making, that system is going to be incomplete. And when it is incomplete, it will make incorrect recommendations. And if it makes incorrect recommendations, incorrect recommendations are very easily detectable by humans, by clinicians. And when they detect an incorrect recommendation, they will not trust that system and, and they will stop using it. So it has to work at the level of interoperability. And then it also has to work at the level of the the technology itself, usability, ability to connect healthcare provider and patient. So there's a lot of complexity in making an app work in our healthcare system. Mm -hmm. How would you assess the state of uh, interoperability in digital health or healthcare in Canada? Because uh, what you said makes total sense, but in practice, we still see that uh, clinicians use hundreds of literally IT systems, or at least a hundred or more IT systems um, are available in, in one institution. And yet what ends up happening is that they have to just manually transcribe from one system to the other. So just type from one system to the other because of the lack of interoperability. And then you don't only have duplicate data, you potentially even have different data. So it's a mess. Yes, uh, I think that's very true. And I think you know, it goes back to what I said earlier about the, the ability to tag and track our, our data. Because in 
in the meat industry in Canada, if I can give an example, we have the ability to track meat all the way from the time a calf is born. We know its mother. So we know even before a calf is born about this calf. When the calf is born, we are able to track it all the way from the food it eats, where it grew up, where it got slaughtered, where the meat arrived. All of that we can track. Okay. But patient data, which has a huge sacredness in Western culture, huge sacredness. We can't. If I see a piece of data lying around in a data set, you don't know where it came from. How can you trust its provenance? How can you know that this data was collected appropriately? How can you know that this data was shared appropriately? How do you get that this data was used appropriately? You can't. And so what we need is the ability to tag data for all of those kinds of things that it should know Whose data? Where did it come from? Which patient did it come from? Which clinician captured it? Under what authority was that captured? Under what authority was it shared with the person who is using it for analysis? All those kinds of things need to be baked in. And when we do that, I think what will happen is that interoperability will become much more feasible. Because as I said before, interoperability is not a technical problem. Interoperability is a problem of technology. And that, for the most part, has been solved, but it's also a problem, policy, governance, and economics. And when we, when the economics are wrong, uh, interoperability doesn't work. I like the fact that you answered the previous question by making a, a comparison to a completely different industry. And usually when you talk to people in healthcare, they say that healthcare is the most complex system or industry in the world. Would you agree with that? We, we're both biased because we've been in the space, but still, how, like, why is it not as simple as what you just described before? I think it's not that it's the most complex. I think there's every where you will see complexity. It's that I think in this industry, we have a sense of urgency. The things that we have to do are that, if I may use a factory analogy, the units that come to us are not built by us. They come to us given, meaning patients. And patients are extremely complicated. They have their own unique histories, their, their own unique DNA. They have their own unique social histories, they have their own unique cultures, they have their own unique family beliefs, and that creates, that complicates the matter a lot. If you think about it, for example, comparing it to the car industry, Toyota makes millions and millions of uh, units, but they're all are manufactured by them. And so when something breaks, they can either replace a part, but they can fix the part or whatever, but they know how it was manufactured, and therefore it's easy to reverse engineer and fix the, the car. With humans, it's much, much more difficult. And I think that, and usually when somebody's healthy, we're not allowed to experiment with them. And when they're sick, then it's a sense of urgency that we have to fix them right away. And I think that creates a, a little bit of a sense of urgency. And so we don't really have much time to think about a much larger picture. We tend to focus on an individual and we don't think about our systems as much. And of course, that's changing. It's been changing over the last decade. Much of what we've spent over the last maybe two or three decades around understanding our health systems is that we're just trying to understand how they work rather than how we can uh, actually design them appropriately. And I think we're now getting to a point where uh, people know enough about how health systems work that we can start to think about how we can design them. So in the current situation, what do you see as the most difficult part of software development for healthcare? 
Now, software development is extremely challenging because the return on investments aren't there. Like I said uh, earlier, investments are not driven by price in the healthcare system. It's driven by policy. And policy can't move faster than technology. Policy is always lagging technology. So if somebody comes up with something, it's going to be very difficult for them to get that technology off the ground because the policy isn't there to to drive it. And so we have to find better ways of converting policy into signals for technology and saying, here's how I can get you going faster. I think I, just, I see that as being the major uh, roadblock at the moment. And I think Germany is doing something to fix that. I, I noticed that they've got a, a program for paying for apps that are approved by the government. And so I think we'll hopefully see something like that coming along in other places as well. I'm still stuck um, on the topic of the complexity of individuals. You were talking about patients. The same thing could be said about uh, doctors or nurses or other users um, of healthcare IT. And in um, a recent book that you co-authored titled Smart and Pervasive Healthcare, to which you contributed with a chapter on designing disease-specific mHealth apps for clinical value, you mentioned the importance of behavior theories uh, to know them, to understand them. And uh, I wasn't aware that there are as many as 89 different behavior theory models that have been researched. How do you wrap your head around that? How can one even know which one to go to if there's so many of them? Ever since I wrote that, that chapter, I realized that there's another chapter that needs to be written. <laughs> as a true academic, There's, the research never ends. But I think my own sense is that after reading that, reading all that literature, in order for me to write that paper, I had to read a lot of literature. I don't know. I, I got the sense that now that I reflect upon it, I think that we have got it wrong in the healthcare system. And that is that I do believe that behavior change is definitely what we need to achieve. But a lot of the behavior change things that I saw tended to be manipulative in that it's trying to get you to do something that you are not naturally inclined to do or would want to do. And it's saying you are wrong, uh, patient. You don't know how to behave properly here. Let me show you how to behave, but I don't want to really show you how to behave. Let me just trick you into behaving this way. And then all of a sudden you will exhibit the right behaviors and you will become healthier. <laughs> and, I, and I look at that and I say it in this kind of way bring out the ridiculousness of it. No, it cannot work that way. If you spoke to somebody from education, they would say, uh, you can never have somebody exhibit a special behavior unless they have a skill in exhibiting that behavior. And so that's why in education, we teach people skills, and then we hope that they will use those skills in their workplace or in uh, their life so that they can exhibit the behaviors that are successful behaviors. So I think in the healthcare system, we need to uh, focus on skills for patients, just as we focus on skills for doctors and nurses. We don't say, oh, you're behaving improperly. We say, no, you lack the skills to exhibit the proper behaviors. Let us teach you those skills. So I think we need to do the same with patients is we need to say, you are smart, you are in charge, you are not skilled, therefore you are exhibiting poor behaviors. Let me, let us teach you the, the right skills so that you can exhibit the right behaviors. And I think if we do it that way, then what we can do is we can engage people and increase their autonomy. And that actually is flows into one of the most powerful behavior change theories that I discovered when writing that paper, 
which is self-determination theory. And what self-determination theory says is that our behaviors change when we have three things, that we have autonomy, which means that we make choices for ourselves, that so we're not coerced, so nobody's telling us what to do. We chose, choose it on our own because we understand the benefits that will accrue to us from making this change in our behavior, that there's competence, that you have to have competence to be able to make those changes, and that there is this concept of relatedness, that by relating to other people, to our doctor, to our family, to our future selves. So there's this concept of relatedness to your future self. So if you are related to your future self, you will do more now for your future self. And if there's no relatedness with future self, then you do less for your future self. Okay, I think that's a very interesting concept. And I think those are the kinds of things that we need to understand better and understand how to convert those concepts into features in an app so that people are more amenable to making changes, but under their own control and under their own desires, rather than being tricked or forced or coerced. You reminded me on one of the interviews I had uh, about VR in healthcare with Professor Walter Greenleaf from Stanford, and he mentioned why VR can be very persuasive and powerful when it comes to, to prevention, because you can simulate what the consequence of uh, avoiding prevention, say, in the diabetes is going to be. And that's exactly the big challenge with prevention. If you don't don't feel pain, it's hard to be compliant with medication, adherent with doctor's orders. And yeah, because you just don't feel the pain yet. And yeah, at a certain point, chronic patients do just want to uh, live. And actually, you would probably know that uh, better than me, because one of the fields of your expertise that you're researching is prevention for diabetes. So what have you discovered on that front? Oh my God, it's so complicated. It's so complicated because there's the, at the policy level, what has happened is that people have not kept up at the policy level of advancements in this field. So if you go and speak to policy people, they still think that they still believe what was known 20 years ago is that, oh, prevention is too expensive. So what we now do is we just let people get diabetes because it's just easier to deal with diabetes than to deal with pre-diabetes. And I think that has changed. So it, prevention is definitely more cost-effective and probably cost-saving today than it was maybe 20 years ago. And I think the Americans have figured that out and the Americans are paying for the diabetes prevention. So it's now listed on one of the benefits of their government-funded uh, programs. But the one thing, of course, at the policy level. Then at the integration, interoperability, and collaboration le level, of course, much of the data is missing. How do you find out what the outcomes of prediabetes are and, and be able to get all that information so that you can do the prediction is another important element. Because as when you're training artificial intelligences or machine learning algorithms, they need a lot of data. And so you need data, but you you need data not just about the patient, but also the outcomes. And how many hospitalizations did they have? How many specialists did they go see? All of those kinds of things help predict, help your prediction algorithms. But when you don't have access to that, then that becomes a challenge as well. And I think at the micro level, at the level of the patient and the provider, how do you identify patients? And 
one of the things that we know is that countries like Canada, Europe, where the risk of developing diabetes is relatively low, which means that you can't treat everybody in the population for diabetes prevention. It would be too costly. So you have to identify high-risk populations. If you're going to identify high-risk populations, you need access to physician data. And typically, those are held in closed silos. So that becomes a challenge to be able to extract data and identify patients at scale. And then once you've identified them, how do you reach out to them? They're saying, where did you come from? How did you get my data from my doctor's office? So you have to have appropriate legal structures in place to enable you to call the patient on behalf of the doctor. And once you've reached out to the, to the patient, you need to convince them that all of a sudden, something that they have not heard about, that they have no knowledge of, should become a priority in their lives. And they're like, I already have 20 priorities. I don't want somebody else to tell me what my 21st priority should be. And convincing people that they should do something. And that, by the way, it's going to be so easy and, yes, undemanding. Yes, it's going to be so undemanding that you'll be able to easily add a 21st priority and you won't have any problems. And so, please, you should do this. And then once you have them, then saying to them, oh, now you have to do this huge, heavy, skill-based program, which nobody wants to do because it's too heavy. So what you need to be able to do is figure out how do I personalize the intervention so that it's specific to this patient and that they do they are able to do the minimum required in order to go from being at high risk of prediabetes to being at of developing diabetes to a low risk of developing diabetes. Those are also... Um, things that we need to figure out and by no means are they, they simple. Especially with digitalization on all levels of life, you can't even sit at home normally without knowing five things about IoT devices that are uh, everywhere in the home. It's, we need more and more solutions that make things as simple uh, and as easy as possible. And uh, then with the overwhelming amount of uh, information, it's uh, really difficult to bridge the gap between what the market offers, what the doctors can know that exists, and then can then convey to or recommend to patients. So how do you see that with mHealth apps, for example, that gap could be breached? We've got a lot going on, investments are rising, the usage of mHealth apps is also rising, but it's still at very low levels. Uh, the research and surveys consistently show that. But yeah, so how would you say that the gaps could be breached? I think that's an excellent question. And I think for it to be, bre to be breached and to be bridged is, requires, I think, government investment. So I'm seeing that in Germany. And I think what, what governments have to do is they have to be able to convincingly convert policy into price. Price is what drives investment. Policy does not. So what governments, I think, need to do is create app stores where it creates a marketplace for patients to come and purchase apps and for app vendors to make their apps available. And of course, that would have to go through some sort of approval process and some sort of appropriateness for funding process, which can be developed. Governments have been doing that for drugs for many years, and um, I think uh, it's not an unsimilar process. And I think what would ha what should happen is that the app stores should be made available so that patients can benefit. And I think there's a third thing that is important, which I haven't seen the Germans do, and I, ha I haven't seen anybody else do, but I think what 
has to happen is there has to be a risk-based component in there as well. So for example, if somebody has no risk of developing diabetes and they come and they download the app, there's no value to the government for that person to be using that app. So the government shouldn't say be paying for that. They should be paying for risk reduction. And so I think this is what creates complexity around implementation, but it's not unreasonable to expect that we can do it. But the idea would be that you recommend the app to people who are at highest risk and say, we will give you the highest subsidy for the utilization of this tool. So please come and download it. Because if we do, that's when we will get the benefit of it. Because typically the people who use these apps, and that's what the surveys are showing, is that it's healthy people who use the apps. And they get no benefit from it, but they like doing it. And, and the reason they're healthy is because they have that type of mindset of using these kinds of apps and thinking about their health. And the people who are not thinking about their health and not thinking about these apps are the people who need it most. And I think that is the challenge, is how do we get those people using the app? And if we can find the way of doing that, then I think we will be successful. Mm -hmm. And that ties into a lot of um, other non-technical uh, factors such as the socioeconomic status, the, the zip code, as we like to say, and many other things. You're a physician by background, family physician. Why did you, like, what kind of got you to go away from working in the clinical practice? I was seeing that I was dealing with very sick patients and I could see that uh, their sickness arose not from chance. It wasn't chance that brought them here there was a series of actions on their part over many years that led them to being as sick as they were. And I was actually dealing with young sick people, not old sick people. So these were people on disability, with people with mental health disorders, people who had maybe had worked for a while before, but then became too disabled to work. So I was, I'm dealing with a very obscure and very small population in our overall healthcare system, but that's who I ended up working with for whatever reason. I think I was, I, I like complexity and I like complex problems and the other doctors who needed to see people fast couldn't deal with those. So probably they said, oh, Kareem, can you please take a look at these people for me? And I ended up collecting very complex patients in my practice. And that's when I realized that if we're going to have an impact, we need to reach out to these people much, much earlier. And we need to identify them much, much earlier and catch them before they they get so sick that no matter what you do, it's too late to do anything for them. And then you moved out of the, the clinical practice. I, I had been doing both for many years. I had been doing IT consulting and running a practice. And then when the cloud came out, I said to myself, Kareem, you cannot keep up with both medicine and technology because they are both going to just explode. So I had to make a choice. I had to say, are you going to choose medicine or are you going to choose uh, health information technology? And I said, health information technology can make a difference if I'm going to just be treating people who are, I can make a difference to those people's lives, but I will never be able to prevent them from having all those diseases and all those complications of their previous uh, activities. Mm -hmm. Yep, follow the technology is what I said. 
it's uh, uh, welcoming to see healthcare professionals working in health tech because as we mentioned several times, healthcare is uh, so complex that it's uh, you need experts from the clinical practice to be able to develop use, useful solutions that are actually also used. I think that's an important distinction. You can have a useful app that um, uh, requires you to manually input uh, 10 data points, and it's useful if you do it, but it's not used, so it's useless in the end. But at the same time, I must say that looking at the numbers of the increase in workforce shortages uh, in healthcare, I do get continuously worried when I see those numbers rise, and that's been worsened by the pandemic. And the reason is that if you have less physicians in the systems and they're overburdened, how can they even start coping with additional things like taking the time to check the app store and what's new and what they could recommend the, the patient? Even from the industry side, I find it very challenging to really succeed in the market regardless of how good your solution is how what's your observation in that regard 100 percent, i totally agree and that's why i think that we need to have i think the app store makes uh, first of all makes sense so if there is no app store then there's no point in uh doctors recommending so first we need the app store but I think the other thing is that with artificial intelligence algorithms, and actually this is an area where I've published quite a few papers, it's actually quite easy to predict who will develop diabetes much better than current approaches. It's not perfect, but it's better than what we have right now. And so if we were, for example, and this is the picture I try to put in, into a doctor's mind, is I say, look, what if I gave you a button on your electronic medical record and you click this button and it would give, it would in instantly pop up a list of people who are at risk of developing diabetes or whatever else. List of people who uh, will have a heart attack in the next five years or a list of people who will have a stroke or whatever. It doesn't matter. Some bad outcome. And I said to them, I it would give you this list and then you could say, click here and it will outsource all of those people to a service that you control, it would be like a nurse or some uh, other healthcare provider, like a telehealth program that would go through and uh, reach out to those patients on your behalf and would uh, work with them to help them reduce their risk, whether it was, okay, you need to be taking your medications. Why aren't you taking your medications? Oh, you can't afford it. Okay, here, let me help you uh, apply for a program that help you pay for your medications or Somebody says, oh, I don't believe in drugs. Okay, let's work through what is it that is concerning you about this and work with them to solve that problem and so forth. Then I think we could potentially solve this uh, issue. Doctors don't have time for that kind of outreach and walking pe people through the process. And the problem is for us as a healthcare system is it's precisely those people who need that help. Because if I have 100 patients who have high blood pressure, and 80% of them are compliant with their medications. That's great. But the people who are showing up in the emergency department come from that other 20% who are not. And that's what's driving healthcare utilization today. It's not that we're not doing a good job. We're doing an excellent job, but we still have work left to do. And that work is hard for doctors to do. To do. And what we need to do is we need to come up with new services that can reach out to those patients and say, uh, here, let me give you a service that's tailored to your needs. 
And it's interesting, the UK and Scotland are already doing that. So for example, with diabetes care, every patient with diabetes gets an, a letter saying to them, you need to have your feet checked. Can you please come and see your doctor? And if after two months, the patient doesn't show up, then somebody calls them and says, hey, can you please come in? And then a whole bunch of people come in. And then if you haven't come in because of a letter and because of a phone call, somebody comes to your door, knocks on your door and says, can I please look at your feet? Okay. It's a much more customized and tailored program for patients, but that has worked. And I think in, in Canada and in the US, we would have a hard time doing that because we would consider that to be an invasion of somebody's privacy to, to do that here. But I think uh, we can still get do better a better job of outreach with those 20%. And maybe we can't reach that the hundredth person, but we can reach at least 18 or 19 of them mm. of those last 20. So I think that's, you know, something that we need to think about. You actually helped uh, create the architecture for the Canada's primary care chronic disease surveillance system. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? What is it? Where is it now? What can other, especially public healthcare system, learn from that? Yeah, so I think the challenge was that we have multiple electronic medical record systems across the country. And of course, doctors have different styles of uh, entering data. Each electronic medical record has a different way of capturing data. And what we needed was a standardized database. Before I designed that, I had started a business to, to provide a software to doctors for uh, tracking their patients with diabetes and uh, a few other diseases that uh, the government was encouraging them to, to track. So as part of the, the package, I said to them, look, I know you don't want to enter data, what I will do is I will give you a free service. I will extract data from your electronic medical record and pre-populate your registry for you. And they like that. So literally, and of course, I'm giving a free service, a very complex free service that had never been developed before. <laughs> so I said, to, I, I, I said to myself, Karim, you're only allowed to spend two hours extracting all this data. So literally, I would go in to the doctor's office and I would... I have never seen this EMR before, okay, or this uh, billing system before. So what I would do is I would speak to the receptionist or the, the secretary and say, how do you extract data from this system? And they would teach me because they've been using it for years. And literally within a few minutes, I would know, okay, I know exactly how to extract the data. And I would extract everything in two hours. And I did this 40 times. So by the time that it came time to design this Canada's chronic disease surveillance network, I had a very good idea of how different vendors designed their databases. And that was the key, is that most of those vendors have no clue how to design a database. And so there were all sorts of errors in database design. And so when I designed the entity relationship diagram for Canada's chronic disease surveillance network, I built in all the different ways that different vendors will store that data and gave enough room so that uh, we could standardize it, but that different vendors' data could go in differently. And it, was, it had that kind of flexibility to the database. And so then when we started to extract data from all these different electronic medical records, the data would end up going into that shared database. 
And then what we started to do was we started to automate a whole bunch of our processes. Mm -hmm. So we realized that cleaning up the data, de-identification, all of that is hard work. You can't have humans doing that. The variability was too high. So what we did was before we would tell them, tell the data managers, okay, you need to, here's what you can do to clean it up before you put it into the standard format. And it was too messy. So then I just said to them, look, before you even do anything with it, just put it straight into the database. And what we'll do is we'll combine all these databases into one major database. And then automatically all of us will create the software to, to clean up this data. And we were able to do that. And by doing that, we actually lowered the cost of doing it. So it was taking us two months, two and a half months to extract, clean, de-identify, transform, load, and bring it into a central repository. And when we changed the order around, it went from, we were able to get it down from two and a half months to five days. So the cost of extraction and, and manipulation came down dramatically. And so, in fact, when the federal government stopped funding them in 2015, the costs were so low that they still maintain it down to, to this day. And uh, we now are at, I think they, they actually increased the number of, of sites. So now when I finished off, there was about a thousand and 2015, there was about a thousand doctors. And now they're up to 1500 doctors and then over 2 million patients in this database, very nicely structured, de-identified and able to be used for research and surveillance. And now they're starting to where they take the data back into the doctor's office, relink it with the patient identifiers, and the doctor can use it for a, a variety of uh, quality improvement programs. And the, the data is now housed at Queen's University at, in Kingston in a secure facility there. And the, in the initial stages, how were hospitals and uh, IT vendors incentivized to, to take part in this? Because you either can mandate it, this you can try to find uh, governmental funding. Otherwise, you just risk that somebody's going to say, no, I, I've got other priorities on my to-do or to-develop list. We used a completely different method, which is, I which is what I call the Kareem method. So what I do is I have a goal, and then I say, okay, how am I going to get to this goal without having to pay anybody anything? This is, okay, this is the, in my ethnic group, we are from India. We are the business people of India. And so we don't want to pay anybody anything. So what I did was I have a lot of friends and I took out a few lawyers out for lunch, which is the cheapest way to get a lawyer, by the way. And I said to them, this is what I want to do. What's the legal way to do it? And basically what I found out is that when a, a doctor purchases an electronic medical record, they own the data. They are the the health information custodian in this country. And so the vendor cannot tell them what to do with that. What I did was I went into those doctor's offices and I said, can you give me permission to extract your data? And if they gave the permission, then I could do that. So that's what we did. We went and we did, we developed an agreement with the doctors for extracting extraction of their data. We told them that it would be de-identified, so which we did, which is not trivial, but doable. And uh, so when we did that, we were able to get research ethics board approval for doing the extraction. And so we had the authority, we had the permission to extract, and then we had the authority to house. And once you have the, the permission to extract and authority to house, then uh, you can do anything. And the vendors, we had, we didn't need the vendor's permission. 
And here's what I learned is that at that time, the vendors were not encrypting their databases because encryption and decryption was too slow. You couldn't do it in the fly uh, and run a clinical system. So we were able to extract that data because it was unencrypted. And of course, in those days, it was all mostly client server. There was no cloud based systems because so it was easy to extract the data that we needed mm-hmm. what year was this i was hired on i think it was 2000 yeah 2007 i started the project was started in 2008 april the reason i asked that uh, was because i think that the com- level of complexity with the data today has risen a lot especially because of all the devices that are tracking or measuring something i want to also pick a pick your brain regarding that regarding wearables and sensors i came, came into the digital health space in 2015 and at that time some investors would say oh we're over wearables because we are looking at implantables only i think that the hype around wearables came back a little bit with the the apple watch today we have some wearables that are more more useful or used than other smart garments uh, you name it iot devices that you don't even know are measuring things so from that perspective how do you see the management of all this data and the challenge of the doctor seeing the right data i, I think it's much easier than you think that's good news. Okay. Yes, it's much, much easier than you think. So the first thing I tell people is that, look, your body was designed to last 80, 90, 100 years. And it's the one mechanism on this planet that is so amazing that it is self-managing for 70, 100 years. Okay. In fact, even doctors, we can give you medications. We can do a bunch of different things. We can do surgeries. But at the end of the day, we count on your body's ability to heal itself. That is how you live that long. And so I think what I tell people is that, look, the vast majority of people uh, who are healthy and who manage their health, you don't need to wear a wearable. And even if you did, it would be normal for 99.999999% of the time. You're not going to find a signal when the the signals are 99.999% perfect, okay? So why bother looking for a signal when everything is mostly noise or nothing, okay? So I think where it's necessary is in people at high risk. And that's where we need it. And then what we should have is artificial intelligences that can quickly identify a signal when it's necessary and alert somebody to say, I found a signal that indicates future activity that will happen in two hours, five hours, 10 hours, 20 hours, so that there's enough time for us to respond. And that's what's necessary. And I think, and of course, I'm super simplifying the use cases here, but I think if we're gonna do anything useful, that's where we need to start. And I'm already seeing that, okay? So in, in the hospital at, at McMaster University, they now have a tool or a device that allows them to predict who will have a cardiac arrest in the next two hours. And so before a patient even has a chance to get a cardiac arrest, they're already taken them into the ICU and already started treating them. And that I think their numbers of cardiac arrests have gone down dramatically in that institution. And I think that's where I would say is, and of course, and by the way, they're doing that all manually. So that's where I see the opportunity for a wearable 
to say, hey, I can put a wearable on this person and I can identify their risk of developing uh, cardiac arrest much earlier, automate it, and now we can do something. So I think those are the use cases where I think we need to start with and and just uh, improve that over time. I just have one more question for you, and that is, what would your advice be to healthcare providers regarding healthcare IT adoption and implementation? In one of the recent interviews with some analysts from McKinsey, they mentioned that one of the main realizations for healthcare providers is that technologies usually have lower return on investment that one would hope. So you really need to think strategically regarding how and what you're going to implement. It takes months or even years for healthcare IT systems to be adopted in healthcare institutions. A range of challenges there, but what would your advice be to healthcare providers? 100% agree. And I think one of the things that I am trying to do now in our program at the University of Toronto is start to develop a methodology for developing a business case. How do you develop a business case for understanding the return on investment for any kind of technology? Because if you don't have an, a way of doing that, and I'm surprised like, that we're not able to do that. I'm at the Institute for Health Management Policy and Evaluation at the University of Toronto, and we have health economists as a big part of our program. and. They have no idea how to calculate a business case. They do uh, cost effectiveness and cost utility and all these kinds of very esoteric and needed economic analyses. But when it comes to making a health technology assessment and saying, what will be the return on investment and can I develop a business case? No, there's no signs of developing a business case. And by the way, I have been trying for the last five years and it is much more complicated than I thought it would be. I thought, oh, I've got an MBA, but developing a business case in healthcare should be easy. No, it's not. It's extremely complicated. and But it's something that we'll try and come up with over the next couple of years. And I think once we have that, then it'll be much easier for people to understand how to make an investment decision. You've been listening to Faces of Digital Health. If you enjoyed the show, do leave a rating or a review wherever you get your podcast. It can be very simple if you just go to lovethepodcast.com slash faces of digital health and you'll be redirected to the platform appropriate for your device. Additionally, if you enjoyed the show, do subscribe to the podcast to be notified about new episodes automatically. Stay tuned. <laughs>